And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 20. We are at that part of Luke's account of the early church, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, continuing the expansion of Christ's church, chapter 20. Now we are still in Ephesus. Paul has been there for two years. He was in Corinth for 18 months prior, an exciting ministry to a place that had I had really no inkling of the gospel, um, at least less inkling than most places he visited, Um, really under the weight of paganism and the difficulties that that kind of culture brings. And so it was exciting to see the church be born in Corinth. Um, But when he got to Ephesus, he started a ministry, a resident ministry that was powerful. From Ephesus, the gospel went to all the reaches of the, the area around in Asia and beyond to the point where Luke describes all of Asia having heard of Christ, essentially, uh, that the word that Paul was preaching went that far and that wide. While he was in Ephesus, though, he got word from Titus, who he sent on a reconnaissance mission to Corinth to see how things were going, and Titus didn't have a good report. And so he was burdened about what was happening in Corinth while he was in Ephesus, and then the plot started against him in Ephesus, and there was this attempt to stir up a riot to have the authorities kick Paul out. But it backfired. God preserved Paul and the church in Ephesus. Now things have calmed down a bit immediately thereafter, and we pick up the passage. Uh, I want you to think what we've learned about Paul and his ministry. Peter's before him, and then Paul as he's become the bigger focus of the book of Acts. He and his cohort of missionaries. If you were to describe Paul's mission, what would you say it is? The gospel mission? Sure. He brings the message of the gospel to people who haven't heard, how they can who be saved from their sins by resting in Christ and trusting in him and his finished work. That's the message of the gospel. But now it takes on another level because he's going back through places that have already heard the message and embraced it, at least many people have. Now he's encouraging them. This is an important concept in word as it's used in the text we're studying. He comforts them, he encourages them in the gospel. So we might call Paul's ministry his life in ministry, one of gospel encouragement. I would submit to you in the onset, that's the call for us, the church today, and as individuals and as families, we are to be about gospel encouragement. We are not the same, having been saved by God. We are under his gospel, and we want to encourage one another and encourage the message of the gospel everywhere we go. That's the life and ministry of Paul in a nutshell. And he shows a real balance between actively pursuing this gospel encouragement activity and ministry and resting on God's provision and his sustenance to see this mission through. Let's pick up now in the passage. It's right after the riot was quelled, and we pick up Acts 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy. 
and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us, that's Luke speaking, at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, help us by your Spirit's aid to understand your word and to be changed by what we read. May our thoughts of you be enhanced and elevated so that we might worship you with our devotion and with our lives. Father, as a church, give us a zeal for gospel encouragement, for a mission, for a ministry that seeks to proclaim Jesus and bolster that message in all, by all the means you've given to us. Lord, give us balance in this approach that we would be active in pursuing such endeavors and at the same time being totally dependent upon your sustaining grace. We witness this by the ministry of the apostles in the early church and we ask for your aid in emulating this. In Jesus' name, amen. So the ministry of Paul and the apostles, the ministry of the church is one of gospel encouragement, making very clear what the gospel is and then continually encouraging concerning it. Have you ever wondered what took or what allowed Paul to speak for hours and hours and hours? He didn't just preach the entry message of the gospel. He kept preaching that in all its dynamics by taking the Old Testament and showing how Christ fulfills all these forecasted features in the Old Testament. I mean, opening up the layers, of exposing all the richness of the word as it relates to Jesus. And so it, it's not surprising at all that it would take him hours to speak of this. And when he went to the various places that he visited, after preaching the gospel fresh, he would then go back to those who, had, who believed and then encourage them again in their belief and then unpack more of those truths for them. Much of the content of his epistles by God's Holy Spirit are compressed versions, no doubt, of all that he taught in these places that he went back through and encouraged them in their faith. This ministry of gospel encouragement requires strategy, it requires energy, we should have a plan, a vision for how it goes forward, but at the same time, it's not about our strategies, ultimately, that give it success. We have to be dependent upon God's means for these things to take hold and give fruit. We have to be reliant upon God's sustaining grace. And along the way, he'll do amazing things to remind us that he is the one who produces the fruit. Now, it's not always a resurrection like we see with Eutychus, but he does things in our lives and in the life of our church body that give us pause, that give us a chance to praise him for the way he has his hand upon us and his mission that we should be zealous about. 
I want us to look at this passage and recognize this balance in the way Paul carries himself. A, a very helpful balance, you might say, between actively carrying out a planned mission or ministry of gospel encouragement, but then also patiently relying upon God, God's provision and his supernatural movement, which is required for anybody to be born again and for any born again person to grow in their faith. It's that activity of God that must happen. Paul's life and ministry demonstrated an effective balance of personal effort and regular reliance upon God's sustaining grace in this ministry of gospel encouragement. Let's look at this unfold as we see him continually persist through challenges that come. We see how flexible he is when opposition rises and he keeps moving forward with this mission that he's been given. He functions not alone. He always has a team with him. Very rarely do you see Paul operating alone. And then yet all this activity and all this planning, it seems, all this orchestrated activity for gospel encouragement, it only is possible because they're relying upon God's grace. We see them in worship, the early church worshiping on the first day of the week uh, to partake in the sacrament of communion and to hear the word explained and taught. And when we see God do something amazing in their midst, to continue to give them encouragement about his sustaining power. We're to keep moving in the calling that God has placed us. We are to envision his hand upon us and his commission to make disciples. Notice the persistence that is displayed once again in the ministry of gospel encouragement in verse 1. You know, for the Christian, every one of us here, not just pastors or missionaries, every one of us um, our call to gospel encouragement in the spheres God places you, in your, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, in uh, the friends you have, the hobbies you participate in, your vocational calling, you bring Christ to all those places just by who you are and how you see the world through the lens of Christ. Gospel encouragement is really what gives you the most passion. We do a lot of things, but at the end of the day, as we see all those things through the lens of Christ who's redeemed us, we just have a different outlook. And God uses that outlook through his people to make an impact upon other individuals. That's how it works. But the church is certainly about this activity, and we have to persist in this ministry that God's called us to. And certainly, there might be a time to take a break after a riot about happens, and then God quells it, and here we are in verse 1. After the uproar ceased, notice what Paul did. He sent for the disciples, verse 1, meaning he gathered people who he had been training in the ministry um, or training in their walk with Christ. I want to use the word ministry for all of us as gospel encouragement, but then specifically gospel mission ministry too. He sent for his disciples or the disciples, and notice what he does. After encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. He goes on a mini mission trip from Ephesus to go back to some of the places that he ministered to. We know that Corinth was his main focus here. Having heard that report, he was looking for the right opportunity to go back to Corinth for a bit to check on that church. So before he goes, he gives encouragement. Whenever Paul speaks, it's with purpose. And you know that the encouraging words that he speaks are not just simply, you know, feel-good words, or it's not a pump-you-up positive thinking moment with Paul. It's going to go back to the gospel of Christ and encourage them again in that gospel. And this is what he persists in, that ministry. Even though a riot just was quelled, now he's got another plan to go. He's persisting in the ministry, even to the last moment, giving a gospel encouragement to those who are around him. Verse 2, when he had gone through those regions, Macedonia now, this is a compressed version, obviously, by Luke, one verse covering weeks. When he had gone through those regions and had done what? 
had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. So you know that Paul went to those places that had been evangelized. They had heard the message of the gospel, and now he's going to bring more light to it, more color to it, a further reminder, more exposition, more prayer concerning what the Lord has done and thankfulness to God. Much encouragement to these places where he had formerly visited, and now we're growing in their own strength in the Lord. Verse 3, there he spent three months. So he comes to Greece, and the biblical scholars agree, based on comments made in other books, that he was in Corinth at this time, persisting in the ministry of encouragement. But when he got to Corinth, there were lots of issues he had to deal with there. Many, many difficult ethical matters came up, church discipline matters. It was a tough time, those three months, that he spent in Corinth. But the persistence shows in that he actually wrote the book of Romans while he was at Corinth. So he's in Ephesus for two years, deals with the trials there, and persists through. A riot rises up. The Lord quells it. He recognizes there's some peace. I'm going to make a move to Macedonia. And he moves through Macedonia bringing encouragement. Then he gets to Corinth, has to deal with all sorts of issues. He's persisting in the ministry. And then he writes the letter, only the greatest biblical letter, if you can say that. Only the greatest one ever, maybe. I mean, they're all great. You know what I mean, though. Romans. I'm talking Romans. And he writes it in Corinth. And then he returns eventually from Corinth because he's, as we see the usual, look at verse 3, he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was, as he was about to set sail for Syria. So the same pattern happens, but I want you to notice the persistence, and he's persisting in the ministry of encouragement. The Greek word for encourage here is important to remember, it's parakaleo. You probably heard the Holy Spirit's called the paraclete, or the comforter, or the encourager. Comfort, encouragement, they mean the same thing from this Greek word. And it's used here in the first two verses, and it's used at the last verse, which we'll come to in a moment. It bookends this passage. The ministry Paul is about is one of gospel encouragement. Encouragement, when it comes to the people, it's about a seed that has already started to grow, and it helps it to grow further. To encourage is to give a word that inspires people to persevere. That's the general word. But gospel encouragement is to give the word of God to people so they persevere and persist. To encourage is to help people, to help their faith be bolstered in what was said in prior times. It's to reinforce truth, in this case, the truth of the gospel. Encouragement is a powerful, a powerful activator in all of our lives. It's something that spurs us on. It helps us get through difficulty. It helps us to persist. My son Nicholas is a freshman in college, and he went uh, to the Master's University in California. That's a long way away. Um, a large reason why we like the idea is because of a particular coach that's there. The program is a high-level program that he wanted to play for, and we like the, the focus of the coach and his outlook on athletics and the, and the life in Christ. Been there 29 years. He's, he's not an apostle, but as, as coaches in soccer go, he's close. Uh, and so we're really thrilled he'd be playing for this guy, but he's a tough coach. That's what makes him good. And so they go a month early to train before school even starts. So he's almost two weeks into it, and I got a long text from him because the coach has, been, has 27 guys, and, and they're training two a days every day, two and a half hours, and then they play a couple scrimmages against other colleges, and he's a freshman. And most freshmen don't get much time. They don't get much of a look, and they don't even get a lot of communication necessarily from the coach. And so quite a while had been going by, and Nico felt like he was doing okay but wasn't really sure, and he knew his place. He's a freshman. And so uh, a few days ago, the coach gathered all the freshmen and some of the new players who were transfers, and he said to the guys, I'm always going to be straight up and honest with you guys. Some of you will never see the playing field this year. 
Can you imagine that as the first welcome to your first 14 days of, and that's not unusual in a college program like that. Most freshmen aren't going to get a chance to play. So Nico's hearing this, and he's done his work, and he feels, he understands that. He gets it. But afterwards, the coach pulled him aside and said, hey, Nico, I want to talk to you about where you are right now with things. You're tracking just where I was hoping you would. Uh, You're going to get more time. Um, Obviously, size and speed, those are things you have to catch up on when you're 18 going into this league and so forth. And uh, we're watching that. Here are some areas that we want you to work on, these areas that have to get better. Here are some areas you're doing really well, and you're going to get some time this year. Uh, We're going to give you chances to play in these games to start establishing yourself because we see down the line we want you to take one of the places of these guys who will be graduating. And he gave a very encouraging speech. And my son's not a man of many words, which makes you know he takes after his mother, not me. And he gives me this long text telling me everything he said. But this is the part that I want to capture. The last quick text was very encouraging. What did it do for him? It gave him a little bit of a picture of the future, things he has to work on, what the coach thinks of him, where he is, what his progress level is. So when the apostle comes back to these new believers who've been on their own for a while, they have a church leadership that's developed, they know the gospel, but to have the apostle Paul, the one who the Lord used to bring the gospel, come back and say where they're doing well, areas they need to uh, work on or see improvement in, this is your place, remember your place in Christ, remind them of the gospel, very encouraging. Is it, much encouragement, not little encouragement, a lot of encouragement hearing a reminder of the gospel again and all its impacts and effects. That's what encouragement does. It gives us energy to keep on. When he had gone through the regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece or Corinth, verse 3, he spent three months there. A plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about ready to set sail for Syria. This is where he shows, again, a trait that we've seen before, this ability to continue on in the ministry or the mission, yet be flexible along the way. You make your plans, but God directs steps. You make out a strategy, but you recognize things can happen, and you don't get paralyzed, you move on. And notice this subtlety of the passage. When a plot was made against him by the Jews, I'm in verse 3, as he was about to set sail for Syria. So he was getting ready to set sail to go to Antioch, his home church, no doubt. He was going to go across the Mediterranean on a ship. That's perilous on its own. But when you have a bunch of people who are looking for a way to kill you, that could be even more perilous. So it seems as though he's making an adjustment, and I think that's right. Scholars tend to agree that this is reading that way. There was a plot against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, You might say, so he decided to return through Macedonia. He's going to stay on land instead. Uh, With this plot, he was being flexible. He's not going to stop the mission. He'll keep going forward, but he was wise about it. Uh, He was wise about how opposition worked. And so he continues to move further. This is true in life and ministry, and I think you probably know this in in your own walk with the Lord and in your life, that things are going to constantly come up. You have plans, you have ideas, you have a vision for things, but then something will come up to oppose it or possibly stop it, or throw you off. And you have to recognize that, bounce off it, if you will, and move forward still. Uh, Sometimes the stoppage we have when a challenge arises gives us a chance to assess the mission again. Are we on mission? Are we doing what the Lord's called us to do? And then, then we move forward again. So even those oppositions and those challenges are actually parts of the providence of God to keep us on mission, to, to wake us up sometimes, to remember to look to him. I, I don't watch a lot of NFL, NFL football very much, but I was interested in this one recruit that the Buffalo Bills have. He's a rugby player, professional rugby player for nine years, never played professional football in his life. And so they thought, we'll give you a trial uh, to see how you're doing. 
And so the first handoff, they give it to him. He runs 65 yards for a touchdown. That's preseason. It's not a big a deal. But the run was pretty fun to watch because it looked like a rugby player playing football. He ran just straight with the ball up high, and he literally would run into the back of his own blockers, and he'd bounce off and go to the next one. It's like he, was, he didn't understand why they weren't moving faster. And then he moved to the side, and an opposing player would come. He bounced, bounced off him, stayed strong upper body, and bounced off the other direction. He pinballed his way all the way to the end zone, it seemed. And it's like that in moving forward. You're, gonna, you're not just going to have a no-resistance path forward. We as the church, we're not going to have it like that. We're going to run into opposition, but we keep moving forward. We bounce to the right and move forward. We cut back sometimes and go to the left. That's much of what we're called to do. That's a flexibility, a nimbleness to be able to move and be that way, knowing God's given us the mission and he's given us the sustenance to carry it out. We see it here Uh, When opposition arises, he just makes another plan but keeps moving forward. I want you also to notice a trait of Paul that he doesn't operate alone. He always has with him many who minister, Uh, close brothers in the Lord in this case. And in this list, it's, it's most intriguing because they come from all the various places he had previously gone to evangelize. They represent different nationalities, different socioeconomic strata, uh, there's so much about them. And what great names, by the way. You know, people are always looking for names for their children. If you're with child, you might think of some of these names. I mean, we don't have, currently anyways, a Sopater in the church. Uh, we do have a Melchizedek, but we do not have a Sopater yet or a Pyrus. Think of some of the names you can have here. I was even thinking of that hymn that we sang, the first hymn. It was uh, Audentius, Clementius, Producius or something named like that. What a great name. We should see more of this. And I never get any traction when I say this, so I, I don't know why. But Rose is great. I mean, I'm okay with that, but I mean, wouldn't Tychicus be good? Here's the listing, though, of the nine people that made up Paul's cohort of missionaries who were strategizing their gospel encouragement ministry and going to meet in Troas. But notice the listing. Sopater the Berean, remember him going to Berea, the place where they studied to make sure everything that was being said was biblical or according to word and accurate. Uh, The son of Pyrrhus accompanied him. And the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, interesting study on these two individuals. There is reason to believe Aristarchus was someone who was uh, part of nobility, uh, very rich, and then he traveled and was friends with Secundus, who might have been a freed slave. So two very different people from Thessalonica who are now part of Paul's cohort of gospel encouragement. Gaius of Derby, who we've met already, who's undergone hardship for the name of Christ. Timothy, the good close confidant and pastor friend of Paul's. The Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these went on ahead and were waiting for us, that's now Luke speaking, you catch that, waiting for us at Troas, but we, Luke speaking again, sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread or the Passover, and in five days we came to them at Troas. They met back up where we stayed for seven days. The point of this is to note that the teamwork is tight for Paul. He needs human companionship in this gospel mission and in life. Just in life, we need this, especially with fellow believers. John Stott said it is noteworthy that Paul hardly ever traveled alone and that when he was alone, he expressed his longing for human companionship. Bring Mark. Come with me. I long to see you again. You know, mission efforts that we engage in are always done in best in cooperation. Um, in to get together as a church, we send on a mission team, or even just in more informally as we come together to encourage one another in the ministry of our home, in our families, and parenting, or all the things that we do together. It's better together. I was super blessed after the Omaha nation trip came back, and I got to meet a pastor of a church in Missouri um, who went 
on the mission trip with their church and got kind of just by God's providence put together with our team. And they had a great mission trip together. They had been going to the Omaha, they've been going to the Winnebago Nation longer and um, this year because of various circumstances were with us. But our teams had such a great time together in ministry that the pastor told me, and he was here visiting last week, we want to go when you guys go next week, next year. Let us know when you're going. We want to go the same time and partner with you. There's just a sweetness in fellowship we have with one another in Christ and in gospel mission, and it just is better together. And it's by God's design, and that's what you see happen in the life of Paul and the apostles. But notice something that is fundamental to all of it in verse 7. They're, they're making their plans. They're actively uh, engaging in ministry, but they're relying upon God at very key moments to access his means of growth and grace. And that's what we have. Verse 7, a profound verse in the New Testament, really, because it gives us a little bit of an insight to how their worship services or their worship gatherings looked in some way in the early church. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, that be different than the Jewish Sabbath, which was the last day of the week. Now this would be Sunday. On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread, when we, it, just, it reads as though it was a common occurrence. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread. And the, to break bread is most commonly used by Luke as a euphemism for the Lord's Supper, and I'll come back to that. While they were there, what was happening? Paul talked with them, intending to part on the next day. We know that Paul spoke most often of scriptural truth. He unpacked the Word of God and taught. So there he is speaking in that context. And his idea was he'd leave the next day, we're having this gathering, he may not ever see them again. He prolonged his speech till midnight. Just a little word, I mean, I went till 1220 last week and I had some looks. Come on now. Seriously, I mean, this guy just went for six hours. Uh, and, and I know he's Paul, but come on. Anyways, We have this short, compressed picture of the early Christian church worshiping. It's not to say, here is a model, but it is to say we can notice some things that were done. Uh, They met on the first day of the week, which was something that shifted after Jesus' resurrection. There was still significance in the Jewish Sabbath. It was a day that the Jews got together. It was more cultural at that point, and that's where much preaching happened. But the Christians started to join on the whole on Sunday. And I love what our uh, Confession of Faith does with the biblical evidence and puts this statement together that helps us understand this switch from Saturday to Sunday. God hath particularly appointed one day and seven for a Sabbath. That's the general timeless rule of it. To be kept holy unto him. Then the confession says, which from the beginning of the world to the resurrection of Christ was the last day of the week, Saturday. That's the day that God rested, right? And from the resurrection of Christ was changed into the first day of the week, which in scripture is called the Lord's day and is to be continued to the end of the world as the Christian Sabbath. This is a good picture of, or a good statement of what unfolds in the early church. Now, with regard to them gathering to break bread, yes, it's true, they would get together and eat. They would have a feast, no doubt. That was part of, the agape feast was part of it. But this means something else. To get together to break bread, there was a specific referent here. And we go back to Luke's description of Jesus at the Last Supper. Listen to what Luke says very carefully. And he, Jesus, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, after Jesus rose again from the dead, in Luke 24, when he, Jesus, was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So again, the breaking of the bread in association with Christ. Then, in Acts 2, verse 42, 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Yes, it included mealtime together, but it's something more to it. There's, there's the remembrance of Christ's death as Jesus inaugurated at the Last Supper. Now we come to the passage before us, verse 7. On the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. So an important part of our ability to be gospel encouragers is access to the means of God's grace that help us grow. Very simply, the Word of God, praying to God directly because Christ has given us access. We pause and we submit our wills to His wills. That's what prayer, to His will, that's what prayer is about. And participating in the sacraments that He's given to the church that remind us of the gospel. On the very simple level, that's the, the most normal way God will grow us and encourage us in His gospel. And they gather regularly to gain that sustenance so they can then proclaim that message and live that message out. Finally, I want you to notice this episode that happens. I know many sermons have been done on Eutychus, basically kind of make people not fall asleep in church. That's usually what you hear a Eutychus sermon related to. He's really not that important to the story. I know it's amazing. I do want to talk to him in heaven about this. However, it's more about another show of God's giving them comfort and encouragement at a time they needed it, in a pivotal time. Nevertheless, it's an amazing story that we should pay attention to. There were many lamps in the upper room where Paul was speaking, where we were gathered. So the room is stuffy. It's stuffy, and there's open windows. You know, there's no glass in the windows, but everything about it pictures a tough time for anybody to stay awake. This is no judgment, by the way, on Eutychus falling asleep, and there's no judgment on him talking long. So I won't say anything to you if I see you falling asleep, and you won't say anything to me if I talk a little long. We love each other in Christ. And we recognize sometimes things happen. And we're all here at least. We're here together here. And we, our intention is right. But here we have this young man, verse 9, named Eutychus, uh, which means fortunate one, by the way. Interesting. This man named Eutychus sitting in the window, probably a, a young teen at best. Uh, and he's sitting in the window just to get air, no doubt, because it's so hot in there. But while he's there, it says he sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he, just, he was conked out. Tragically, and it's a terrible scene, he fell out from the third-story window and was taken up dead. He was just trying to get some air, and he falls out backwards and falls. Who knows how he falls, but three stories, no matter how you fall, it's going to kill you or hurt you really badly. Now, interestingly, there's quite a debate about whether he was actually dead or everybody assumed he was because he was unconscious. It it doesn't matter to the power of the story, although a resurrection is certainly more impressive. Um, and it's interesting, Luke is a doctor, and he's observing this. And the language of what was described is interesting. It says, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Everyone assumed he was dead. He looked dead. That's the point. And no sooner than this happens, and, Luke, and Paul recognizes this, he runs down with everybody there. He bends over him and takes him up and said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. God does something at that moment to heal him or raise him, whatever the case is. It's a miracle that occurs. And it's a show of God's supernatural power in their midst to bring them comfort. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten after this event, he conversed with them a long while. When, now hold up, he had just got done speaking for six hours. Eutychus falls out of the, the window. He goes and raises him up. Then he goes back. They take communion. And then he speaks with them a long while until daybreak. It's an incredible scene of encouragement. Paul didn't end his sermon after Eutychus. He kept on preaching. He kept on encouraging in the Word. 
Paul's life and ministry on the whole, as we see it, demonstrates this effective balance of personal effort and activity, rigorous activity, and, and, and he's just striving with everything in him to be a faithful uh, gospel encourager, but he's also showing reliance upon God's sustaining grace at every turn. In verse 12, here's that bookend, that word parakaleo again. After this all happened, the whole thing, not just the resurrection or the raising of Eutychus, the whole thing, they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. They were encouraged, this ministry of gospel encouragement. The passage began with, verse 1, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them. Verse 2, when he had gone through the regions of Macedonia, gave them much encouragement. Now verse 12, and he took the youth away alive and they were not a little encouraged or comforted. What exactly is the ministry of encouragement? Derek Thomas says this. It was principally a ministry of the Word of God, a ministry that Paul returned to after raising Eutychus. It was a focus on what God had done in the salvation of souls by the sending His Son as a substitute and satisfaction for sin. Here's how I would like to end as a personal encouragement and application. As it relates to the life God's called all of us to His redeemed people, There's a ton of busyness in all of it for all of us. We all know it. It's not a guilt session about that. But here is what we should gather. We need the means of God's grace. When I was younger going to church, I went dutifully because I thought it would be a way for me to earn favor with God. I knew I was a sinner. I compounded sins during the week, and I thought if I went to church on Sunday, I would... I would keep okay with God. I just I was guilty all the time and I felt like I went for that reason. I don't know if that's that's how you feel sometimes at church or if that's an experience you've had. I hope it's not and I'll come to that. But what I came to realize is that I don't want to go to a place where I'm constantly always guilty about how I'm coming up short. And so I just you know you just quit going at that point. And then of course nothing good comes from that cuz now you're not connected to God's word in any way or the means of grace. Now, in that setting, I wasn't hearing a clear message of the gospel, so it makes sense. And I fear that a lot of what happens today in general is that there's not a clear message of the gospel of God's grace, and so people don't come. They don't get encouraged, so they don't want to come. So from the church's perspective, we have to be very careful about explicitly preaching the message of the gospel and encouraging you in the gospel. Now, part of the gospel is the bad news of our sin, but it always leaves off with Christ. I mean, you leave here Whatever you felt coming in, I hope what you feel coming out is dependence, more dependence on Jesus. It's not excusing sin that we come in with, but we come out knowing that Christ has paid for it. And it gives us something more, some more energy, uh, some more uh, encouragement to live out that next week. And then we come back and we need it regularly to receive that. So on our part, we have to be very careful to feed that to the people of God. That's the means of grace he's given us. Now, on your part, there are a multitude of things that could stop you from being here or being in communion with other believers, could stop you from receiving the means of grace. You just got to know that won't go well. It just never does go well. Just reading your Bible, it just, that doesn't, that's, not it, that's not all of it. God's called us to communion with each other for this context to provide for this. And you know, if you're called away from it because you have to be for some duty or whatever, you know how that feels. Sometimes we just get numb to it and we just push it off and just don't acknowledge, you know, there's a big thing missing in my life. And so this is my encouragement. It's not another guilt thing you need. It's because I know personally and corporately, pastorally, how difficult life is, how many challenges come our way, and how to be persistent, we have to have the means God's given us. And we see from the early church's vibrancy that they did not neglect the gathering together with one another for the purpose of being built up in the faith that God would then 
give them the ability to perpetuate even unto this day. May that continue to be true for us as believers, that we just cannot wait to put aside other things, to come together and be encouraged in the gospel. And I hope you are encouraged in the gospel today. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we need regular reminders of the grace shown to us in Christ. I pray for every person here that if they have any sense of guilt, that they would confess sin that may need to be confessed to you and then rely upon Jesus and know for certain their sins are forgiven and that they are in Christ, that you view them just as you view your beloved Jesus and they're accepted fully in in you and as a result, they are new creatures and they are encouraged because of this and that we as encouraged, forgiven people uh, would carry ourselves in a way that just, it just resonates to other people. Lord, give us that, that attractiveness, that gospel attractiveness so that we may have opportunity to give testimony to Jesus. Pray this in his name, amen. Let us together turn 